Okay, let's go ahead and start. If you are, um, now's the time if you, if you want your children to leave. Now's a good time. Jen's back there waiting for them. So if not, uh, let's talk about sex. Uh, I'm going to do this two weeks. And, and next week, it's going to be primarily negative. Um, and what I'm going to do next week is talk about how we, I mean, me and you as Christians, there's no point in uh, bashing people who are outside of these walls, right? Because they're not in here. I'm going to bash, hopefully, I mean, God's word is going to bash uh, me and you and how you and I as Christians misuse the sexuality that God's given us. But before we do that, I want this week to talk more positively about what sex means and what it is. I mean, out of all the good gifts that God has given us, sex is one of the best. But like all the, all the good gifts that God gives us, we manage to twist it and misuse it and uh, put it in places it shouldn't be. We manage to worship it. As a, as a creator, in a way that we should only, only worship the creator. We do this with lots of good gifts. We do this with food. We do this with family. We do this with jobs. But this week and next week, let's talk about sex and how we do that with sex. You'll notice it in the scripture readings that they all mention the same thing. Genesis 1 and 2 is the original. But then in the Ephesians 5 passage, in Jesus in the gospel reading, quote from, it, from Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and his mother and join his wife and the two shall be one flesh. I mean, it's so important that it gets quoted quite frequently in Scripture, right? It's really kind of the heart of the way that verse is in in Genesis 1 and 2 is really the heart of the way that you and I should think about our sexuality. So let's start off. Let's start with that. What we're going to do is we're going to go to the Genesis reading and then we're going to go to the Ephesians reading. But we're always going to be circling around that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become uh, one flesh. So let's go to the Genesis reading first. God is multiple persons. This is, this is the heart of what sex is, is the Trinity. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. So, so God says, let us, plural, make humans in our plural image. Now, it's, it's not unpacked right here. It's not going to be unpacked for a long time in Scripture. But those of us who are Christians understand this to be God within himself. There's this multiplicity of persons. I mean, later on, we're going to find out that it's father, son, and Holy spirit. But here, all we know is that there's God and God is talking to himself. And he says, let us, whoever the us is, we don't know in Genesis one. We don't how many, how many there are there. Let us make humans in our image. This is the starting fact of God is that he is multiple people. Right. Sometimes my seventh graders, in fact, every year, my seventh graders are going to ask me the question, what was God doing before the creation? Like, wasn't that just boring? Like you just sitting there, right? And kind of hanging around doing nothing. And then he's like, well, let's create the world. And then there's something to do. And the answer is no, it wasn't boring. For eternity past, God exists in perfect relationship with himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, completely open, completely transparent with each other, completely loving each other, filled up with this relationship with each other. It's the least boring thing in the universe. That love pours out in the creation. God doesn't create the world because he's bored or because he needs to. God creates the world because this is what love does. Love recreates. Think of it, if you would, think of it like a fountain. And in the middle of this, like one of those fountains, and some of you have heard me say this before. It's like one of those fountains that has the multiple bowls. And at the top is a small bowl, and the water shoots up and fills that small bowl. And then it pours down off that smaller bowl into a slightly larger bowl and then so on and so forth until you get to the bottom. Think of the top, that fountain, as the Trinity. 
God's love for himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so filled up on themselves that their love outpours into the creation of other humans. And the name of that top bowl is marriage. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God says, let's make man in our image and humankind in our image, right? And then he makes male and female. Male and female he created in his image. Let me, let me read that in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The name of that top bowl is marriage. Look, I, so you like to think of yourself as made in the image of God. And there's a certain sense in which that's true. You as an individual are made in the image of God. But in a, in a deeper, more ultimate sense, it is multiple people made in the image of God. When God makes his image, he doesn't make just a dude or just a woman. He makes man and woman together because since God exists forever in relationship, the image of God exists in relationship. You are never more the image of God than when you, than when you are living out and acting out relationship. And the primal one here in Genesis chapter one is marriage. Now, really quick aside. So you're not married. Does that mean that you're somehow deficient in the image of God? No, that's not the case. There are other relationships that are available to you to exist in. Number one being the relationship with the church, right? But you also have family and you also have friends. You have coworkers. Existing in relationship with this people is the way of living out your, your uh, um, image of Godness as well. But never are you to exist as a lone ranger. Never are you to exist as a solo Christian. Because that's just not the way that God exists. And since he created us to be in his image, he created us to exist in relationship. And the primary relationship here is marriage. Now that gets, that, that gets unpacked a little bit more in Genesis 2, which is our main text for the day. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 20, 24. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. A man and a woman, they leave their parents and become united to each other. This is clearly sex language. They become one flesh. When God wants to describe how you and I mirror the Trinity, He uses sex language to do it. It is in, this, it is in the, the, the sexual relationship of husband and wife that you come closest to looking like the Trinity than you ever would. Then you come, you come as close as you possibly can to two people becoming one person. Now, so I, I, sh- I should have said this at the beginning, but let me say it now. This is going to weird some of you out. Just the fact that somebody in church is talking about sex is weird for some of you. Because we just don't, some of you think that sex is just private and it shouldn't be talked about. Some of you, though, think that nobody has any business telling anybody anything about sex. This is one of the legacies of the sexual revolution. And one of the legacies of postmodernism is that you and I are sovereign individual lords of our own beings. And that means of our own sexuality. Unfortunately, though, for us, all of us who are postmoderns, the Bible talks about sex. And so we have to talk about it as well. And um, especially the book of Genesis. If you've ever read just a, more than a smattering of the book of Genesis, you'll realize that there's just sex everywhere. So it's important to discuss this. I say this because I had a conversation this week with somebody who said to me, has no business being talked about from the pulpit. And their take on it was, um, nobody has any business telling anybody else what to do with their sexuality. But God's, God insists that he has a right to tell us what to do with our sexuality because he invented it. And the first reason he invented it for, there's going to be two of these, but the first reason he invented it for is the one we're talking about now. God invented sex to mirror the life of the Trinity. So what, what, is, what is sex mirroring the life of the Trinity? What does that do? How does it do this? How does it mirror the life of the Trinity? And there's three answers here. One is that, like I just mentioned, it's unity and diversity. 
In sex, two people. In marriage, two people become one person. Two people who are otherwise individuals. This is what, this is one of the reasons why it's really, really, really hard for postmoderns to have successful marriages, relationships, period, but marriages especially, is because you have to give up your individual sovereignty and become one person. You are no longer your own. Is it crazy that Jesus says stuff like, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I don't do my own will. I only do my Father's will. And you're like, well, you're Jesus. Shouldn't you get to do what you want? And Jesus' answer is no. Within this eternal relationship, I don't get to do what I want because I belong to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. In marriage, you don't get to do what you want. In marriage, you lose your individuality. And you become a part of something bigger than you. You become a part of unity and diversity. Two people becoming one. Sex is the acting out of that. Sex is the, sex is the mirror of that. Second thing, covenant commitment. The Father is committed to the Son, and the Son is committed to the Spirit, and the Spirit is committed to the Father. And the three of them do nothing. This kind of parallels the first one, right? The three of them do nothing without each other. And this is what sex is. It is a covenant commitment that I do not belong to myself, but I am literally joined to you. I am literally one with you. This is why, by the way, I mean, this is why sex outside of marriage is forbidden by the Bible. is because it doesn't make any logical sense. If sex is designed to mirror the inner life of the Trinity, and the Trinity is not allowed to, I mean, the Trinity is not hooking up with each other, right? The Trinity is in it for eternity. The Trinity is bound to each other completely. This is why sex should only be within marriage, because one, it's unity and diversity, but also it's permanent unity and diversity. It's saying, I am committed to this act, and I am committed to me and you. This is why, again, this is just an aside, too. This is why, so I worked at a counseling center when I was in college, and like it's so predictable that people would come in, and they would be struggling with depression, they'd be struggling with anxiety, they'd be struggling with suicidal tendencies. And if you probed a little bit farther, you would always have multiple sexual partners, because they didn't know what to do with what was going on inside of their head. They were doing this, consistently doing this act which says, I belong to somebody else. And then they were just stepping away. Or at the same time as they were doing the act, they knew in their head, I'm out of this as soon as I want. They're out of this as soon as they want. Both of us can get out of this as soon as we want. And it was tearing them apart inside. Covenant commitment is the only, only right biblical venue for sexual relationships. And then the third is self-sacrifice. And this goes along with the other two as well. Jesus says, I don't do what I, I don't do what I want to do. I do what the Father wants me to do. And if that means dying on the cross, I'm going to do it because I do not exist for myself. I exist for the other two. Eternally exist for the other two. There's this great line in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul gets this. This is, this is about the, uh, the most explicit sexual talk you can get out of Paul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And here's the principle behind this third point, this third point of self-sacrifice and covenant commitment, unity and diversity, is this. The husband shall fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. You are not permitted to not have sex with each other. If this is true, that your marriage is a reflection in a mirror of the inner life of the Trinity, you are not allowed to not have sex. You are not allowed to not be one flesh. The principle behind it for Paul is this. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Like, how scandalous is that? The wife does not own her own body. Her husband owns her body. Like, I could get shot in some places for saying that. And some of you right now, if you're honest with yourself, are pretty uncomfortable with that language. 
So you're going to have a hard time making eye contact with your spouse with language like that in the Bible. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Why? Because your sexual relationships with your spouse mirror the inner life of the Trinity. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to them. What does this mean? What does this mean practically? Is that, again, this is anti-sexual revolution. This is anti-postmodernism. Sex is not about your pleasure. Sex is not about you feeling good. Does sex feel good? Absolutely. But that's not the goal. The goal is that your spouse feels good. The goal is that your spouse feels safe. The goal is that your spouse feels secure. The goal is that your spouse gets what she needs from that relationship with you or what he needs from that relationship with you because sex is not about you. Sex is about the two become one flesh. It's never an individualistic thing. And you'll find that when you live your life like that, and next week we'll talk about this, none of us do, right? We're all completely idolatrous about our sexuality. Even those of you who are in faithful, long-term, committed marriage relationships, you treat sex as an idol. But if by the power of the Holy Spirit you can actually serve your spouse with your body, you will get more than enough pleasure out of sex. You will get less pleasure out of sex if you use sex to serve yourself. If you treat your spouse like an appliance, like some sort of object that's designed to fulfill you. Because sex is designed for the other. Because that's the way God created us. To be in relation, it's what it means to be made in his image. To be in eternal relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And sex mirrors that. But here's the second thing that sex does. Sex also demonstrates salvation. Sex is also a picture of salvation. This is even weirder for some of you, I know. Like, what does sex have to do with salvation? Like, again, sex is like this, this is salvation stuff here, right? What does sex have to do with that? Again, if Jesus is Lord of the universe, everything about Jesus has to do with everything. There's not one square inch of your life, personal or public, that God does not stamp and say, I own this thing. It belongs to me. It is redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And sex includes that. And so sex is going to be an image of salvation as well. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. That was the epistle reading. It should be in your bulletin there. I forgot to bring my bulletin up with me, so I'm going to read it um, um, out of Ephesians 5. So Paul is in this section. This is the famous section where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church. This kind of parallels what we've been saying. Husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for Husbands, do you belong to yourself? Husbands, does your headship over your home mean that you are in charge? Or does it mean that you are to give up your entire life for your wife just like Jesus allowed himself to be murdered for you. This is what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church. Uh, he he kind of repeats it in verse 28, which is the beginning of our reading in the, in the bulletin there. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So here's the principle is this. Paul's saying, husbands, you exist for the sake of your spouse, since you two have become one flesh, you no longer belong to yourself, but you are now belonging to her. In addition, though, that belonging to her, go past the Trinity language. Now it's redemption language. Your belonging to her has to do with the fact that you are the image of Jesus in the relationship, dying for her. This means that you give yourself up for your wife. Now, he's going to go back to Genesis 2 and use that sex language to describe what this means. When he says... Uh, for this reason, verse 31, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. A man's going to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife so the two can be one, come one flesh. Why? Because here in Ephesians 5, Paul has determined that our marriages are going to image how Jesus came here, 
to unite us to himself so that when we have faith in Jesus, we become one with him in such a way that when God the Father looks at us, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. That is the intimacy of the relationship that those of you who are Christians have with Jesus. You've been bound up with him in union so that you are covered completely by him. Husbands, you are to do the same for your spouse. You are to cover her up completely in your own existence, dying for her so that you can image for her and for your children, for those of us who get to witness your marriage, that Jesus died for us and binds us to himself to save us. And the language that he uses is Genesis 2.21. A man will leave his father and mother and become one, one flesh with his spouse. And then Paul says this. This is a profound mystery. And what does he mean by that? By mystery, he doesn't mean like something that you can't figure out and have to solve. Paul, Paul usually used the words mystery to say this. It was something that people in the past didn't get, but now they do. And this is startling. Look, pay attention to this. Adam and Eve. This is in Genesis 2 when this is happening. This is before the fall. This is before sin has entered the world. This is before marriages have become broken. God has designed marriage. Paul says this is a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Even before the, even before the fall, Paul had designed marriage to be an image. Paul had designed sex to be an image of the salvation that Christ was going to accomplish thousands of years later after the fall. Even before the fall, God has this plan in place. He's giving them hints, foreshadowings, that I'm not going to leave you alone when you screw this thing up. I'm going to come here and I'm going to fix this thing. And if you want some sort of like code or some sort of hint or some sort of mystery that I'm going to do this, look at your own marital sex life. I will not leave you alone. I will bind myself to you. And here are the two things come together. The inner life of the Trinity created in me and you in order to be acted out in our relationships. Most dramatically, most specifically, most physically in the marital relationship. That also gets transferred into salvation. God uses that relationship to, to, to mean salvation. In other words, what happens is this. What marriage is, what marital sex is, is a picture of the eternal God in complete and perfect relationship with himself, pulling you and I by the blood of Jesus Christ up into that relationship eternally. You and I get to be related to the Trinity. You and I get to be one with the Trinity forever and ever. This is why marriage is so important. This is why sex in marriage is so important. Because it doesn't just image the life of the Trinity. It also images our own salvation and God's plan to redeem us by the blood of his son. Amen.